Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. We're always talking about books on here. We read books when we're researching podcasts. Mm -hmm. We're fairly big readers, so we're reading books outside of the office as well. You'll hear us mention a title here, a title there, as the subjects between our work life and our entertainment and personal enrichment reading kind of overlap. So every now and then we throw out book recommendations. You guys write in and ask us about this book or another, or ask for a spelling on an author's name, and we chat back and forth. And we've been talking about doing a summer reading episode for a while now where we just go ahead and eliminate any other content from a short episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind and just talk about a few books that are both near to our hearts but also near to the heart of the show and close to the themes that we often discuss on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Yeah, and the presumption is that it's summer's coming up and and we're all going to laze around for at least two weeks. (laughs) Uh, You guys over in in Europe, I don't Uh know, a month or two. We'll have some time here to tackle a reading list, and hopefully you guys will be interested in some of the stuff that we have to recommend. Yeah, you know, so you can hunt these down, check them out from your library, load them up on your Kindle. I can't speak for your list. I know on my list all these things are pretty readily available, so you shouldn't have to do any deep digging to find them. I like dusty books. I like to crack them open. Yeah. So, But I'm assuming that most of the stuff is available. Yeah. I mean, I do too, though. I just switched... I finally jumped on the bandwagon and have a Kindle now. Yeah, so. I'm going to get there soon, but it just hasn't happened yet. Yeah. I'll put it that way. I mean, they don't smell near as nice. I'm just a cheap jerk, and I'm not there yet. Like, when it drops to 59, probably. Without any further ado, let's roll this baby out. Well, I'll go first, then. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and let you know, most, uh, well, all my choices here are actually fiction, sci-fi kind of books, and you're going to bring more of the non-fiction I'm going to bring the non-fiction. List. There's definitely some non-fiction books that I've been reading or I've read recently, but they're not necessarily things that I would say, yes, you should plow through this as well. <laughs> it could Because there are books that are informative and enriching and well worth the time you spend with them, but it's not necessarily the kind of thing you might want to take on a vacation with you or you know, squirrel away for a little personal enjoyment reading. Although you might be a non-fiction reader like I am mostly. Mm. I enjoy great fiction, but a lot of times I just like to cozy up to something that's really going to stir my brain so that I don't feel like I'm trapped in a certain world for a certain amount of time. Because I tend to, when that happens, you know, I get a really good piece of fiction, I, I want to squirrel myself away for 72 hours and not eat or drink or talk to anyone else. So that's a really big time commitment for me. So nonfiction, <laughs> I really love because it's a balanced way to consume some really cool bits of information. Okay. Well, my first pick is a novel by an author by the name of R. Scott Baker. Sometimes he's just listed as Scott Baker, depending on if you're getting a like a Canadian, British, or U.S. version of one of his books. He's the author of a really thought-provoking epic fantasy series called, well, overall it's called The Second Apocalypse, and it includes the novels The Prince of Nothing, The Darkness That Came Before is the first trilogy in that series. And it's all very thought-provoking stuff. He's a philosophy guy. He invokes a lot of neuroscience in his worlds, even if he's writing about a world full of magic. But those fantasy books are not always as accessible, I think, to some readers. Luckily, he has written a couple of non-fantasy books, and one of these is a book called Disciple of the Dog, and that's the one that I'm going to recommend here. It's a really fun read. It's short, and it is about a sleazy, pothead private investigator with an abnormal capacity for memory. He cannot forget anything that Mm -hmm. is said to him. The capacity doesn't allow him to remember everything that he's read, but if somebody has said it, if he's seen it, 
then it's cemented in his mind. Is that uh, similar to some people who have the ability to recall dates like from 20 years ago or in, in the events connected to them? Yeah, that kind of thing. Should be helpful if you're mm-hmm. a private investigator. And, you know, we've seen this kind of investigator before to a certain extent. Like, I mean, Sherlock Holmes is the classic investigator character. And certainly with Sherlock, you have a character that has just a phenomenal brain and it distances himself from various human experiences and makes him kind of an enigma to normal people. Mm-hmm. Well, the character in Disciple of the Dog, whose uh, the character's name is Disciple Manning, which is kind of gimmicky but fun, he is kind of a screw-up because of his condition. Like, his condition is he cannot forget anything. So anything that traumatizes him is there forever. So he's a character that has had some severe bouts with depression and self loathing based on this ability, but he's also managed to use it for financial gain as a private investigator. And so R. Scott Baker injects a lot of philosophical pondering into this, because when we get into questions that we've raised in the podcast before, to what extent are we shaped by our memory and what to what extent are we shaped by our memory errors? We discussed the seven deadly sins of memory, mm-hmm. the various ways that we misremember something or alter the memory of something in our head. And these are things that the character Disciple Manning cannot do. So it's interesting to see Baker play that out mm-hmm. in the novel. In Disciple of the Dog, the character is looking into a missing persons case that concerns a New Age cult where the believers are of the opinion that it is actually the year A.D. 50 million, and life as we know it is all just the dream of a quantum computer. And the sun is actually about to swallow the earth as it goes into a red dwarf stage. Mm -hmm. So you also end up with ponderings about what is our future and the idea that... that What would it look like, you know, when... Yeah, yeah, what would it look like? And ideas that, what is reality? You know, what mm-hmm. is it possible that reality could be the dreams of a quantum computer? And, and this is all just a backward fantasy. The world around us is just this backward fantasy that we project for ourselves. So there are various levels of, to my mind, mind-blowing ideas mm-hmm. that Baker has fun with in this. And then on top of that, it's entertaining because you have a wonderfully sleazy but likable protagonist and you have this noir setting, like industrial Jersey. So it's not really a, a noir setting, but it's got very much a noir kind of vibe mm-hmm. to it. Classic detective case. What's going to happen? Is he going to find the missing girl? Who's at the heart of the conspiracy? And all of this. So it's short, gets to the point, have some fun with the character, and it brings with it a lot of cool ideas. I like the dichotomy of a pothead with a really long memory, too. Yeah. A sharp memory. Well, it's pretty great. Because it's like the sharp memory is bringing him such trauma. It distanced him from so many people. Mm-hmm. He kind of has to self-medicate through it. Okay. Yeah. All right. What's on your list? Okay. Um, well, I have the best nature and science writing, 2011. That, of course, is a series. And this particular one is uh, guest edited by Mary Roach. She's oh, at the helm yes. there. Yeah. So she's made a lot of the selections here. You'll probably remember her from books like Stiff, Packing for Mars, Bonk. She's just got a really great science journalism pedigree, and I think anybody familiar with her work knows that she has a great sense of humor and the ability to really deliver very accessible points of entry into some weighty subjects. Oh, yes, she's awesome. If you go back to the catalog of our podcast far enough, you'll find an interview with her from back when the podcast was stuff from the science lab. So she's got the selection of different pieces of essays and articles, about 25 of them actually, Some of them are from well-known writers like Oliver Sacks and Leonard Mlednov and Stephen Hawking and others not as well-known, although definitely up-and-coming like Burkhard Bilger, people making a name for themselves for their ability to reframe our understanding of a subject. In fact, Burkhard Bilger is the writer of the article that has to do 
with food safety, which right there sounds like incredibly boring. But this guy <laughs> went into underground food movements like fermenting, which we talked about in a mm-hmm. podcast, raw milk, the paleo diet, all these very different sort of movements going on right now. And what could have just been like a story about the safety of food became this incredible matrix of cultural ideas and scientific theories that are proven and disproven. So anyway, that that's why I really love this series is that it does take this sort of everyday stuff and reframe it for us. Another really good example is an essay by Jaron Lanier. It's called The First Church of Robotics, and it explores our fascination with robotics. It's certainly we have a fascination with it. We've talked about it quite a bit and our need to project ourselves onto these machines and personify them. Mm-hmm. And he says that this is all going on at the same time we are increasingly treating our fellow humans like machines. So it's kind of interesting that you have this shift in the way that we are communicating with one another. We're communicating in ways that rely on algorithms of technology instead of our own personal humanity. So he's saying, hey, I mean, it's more like a cautionary tale. Like, it's very compelling. He's saying, let's not deify a machine quite yet. Doing so just makes us sort of like these grotesque ventriloquists. So that's just another example of one of the more mind-blowing aspects of these different essays. Kind of a buffet right of ideas with this. You do. You do. You could say it's sort of a snapshot of the year of 2011 in journalism, and that would be absolutely true. But the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of this has to do with topics that have been around. It's not just like, hey, this is this zeitgeist moment right here for this subject. I know that there's a one essay or that talks about prohibition and about the government's role in actually poisoning ethanol and in doing so taking the lives of many Americans during prohibition and this is something that's probably not widely known but here's a piece of journalism sort of bringing up the past and saying did you know that at one point prohibition had taken hold so much of the government that they were actually trying to discourage people by making them really sick by mixing together ethanol and other chemicals and in doing so, poisoning them, which resulted in thousands of deaths. So it does, it takes everything from subjects like can animals be gay to prohibition to even space junk, which we've talked about. And it's very entertaining because it does allow you to enter into these subjects in a way that are very accessible. And I was even thinking about Leonard Maledinov and Stephen Hawking and their essay about M-theory, membrane theory or string theory, right, which right. is this idea that we can get this theory of everything together. They ask the reader to imagine themselves as goldfish looking through the distorted glass of their enclosures in, in order to understand the limitations of this theory of everything that we're after. And they say, imagine the goldfish as they formulate scientific laws from their distorted frames of reference that would always hold true and enable them to make predictions about the future motions of objects outside the bowl. So they're taking this really cool analogy of us being fish in the bowl and having a distorted view of reality and then this theory of everything. And again, a really good entry point into this subject matter. So that is why I recommend that book. Well, that does sound like a good one. My next entry in this list is a book called The Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Basagalupi. And this is a really fun sci-fi novel and a really thought-provoking sci-fi novel in that it takes a lot of our fears associated with our use of science today and extrapolates those into a very engaging and to a large extent nightmaric vision of the future. It takes us to the futuristic time. It's a post-oil world. So Mm -hmm. we've used up 
all of our natural resources as far as oil goes. So the petroleum-based system crashes to the ground. Suddenly, traveling across the globe is severely limited. The world, in a way, becomes much larger because we have less ability to travel it and to traverse it. The distances become vast because we can't just fly around the world in a day anymore. There's no more oil. Also, you have genetically modified organisms, specifically genetically modified crops, have backfired in this world to the point where you end up with massive starvations, massive famines, and it's really crippled the world. So in the wind-up girl, we find ourselves in Bangkok, Thailand. And this is one of the few places it's uh, shut itself off from the rest of the world and it's managed to maintain a certain degree of non-genetically altered vegetation that has a certain amount of genetic purity to most of its vegetables, Mm -hmm. and it's able to feed itself. And you have these outside corporations that are interested, these cowrie companies they're called, that are interested in infiltrating Thailand and Bangkok and actually finding some of these examples so they can take them out and genetically tinker with them. Monsanto. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, really, I mean, the bad guys in this, the villains mm-hmm. are basically sci-fi versions of some of the large companies like Monsanto that we mm-hmm. have today. And then you also have a character in this book called Imiko, and Imiko is a wind-up girl, they call her. She's one of the new people. She's a genetically engineered human. Mm -hmm. She's a very interesting character, too, because she's originally bred as basically a pleasure person. Like a Roxy robot, but a flesh, a human flesh one. Yeah, I'm trying to say it in an acceptable way. But she's bred for this kind of life, and she ends up abandoned in Bangkok by her former master, and she's not engineered to really survive all that well. Mm-hmm. She's been conditioned to be this submissive servant to pleasure. businessmen, yeah. a thing of pleasure. Her pores are extra small because it supposedly looks nicer for her to have very poreless skin, mm-hmm. but it also means that she has trouble managing her body heat. Mm-hmm. And so the author does a great job of exploring what life might be like for this genetically modified person, mm-hmm. what kind of flaws are engineered into her. They call her a wind-up girl because she's engineered so that she walks funny, with the idea being that new people will stand out if they're just seen on the street, so there mm-hmm. won't be this threat of the new people taking over. And at heart, it's also just a story about a spy trying to steal something, about political corruption, and about the crimes of humanity and how they may fall out over the decades to come. And so, what it is to be human, too. Yeah, yeah. Or even subjugated, it sounds like. Are there any wind-up men, I have to ask? I forget if there are. I feel like there's mention of mercenaries, men that are they're genetically engineered soldiers. They can, yeah. yeah. It's been a year or two since I read it, but I seem to remember there was a detail about that. Technically, the book is, I think they call it biopunk, which I'm kind of a critic of overuse of the cyberpunk terminology where someone just puts in another... uh, Steampunk? Yeah, well, yeah, steampunk, dieselpunk. The more something fits one of those classifications, the less interesting... I think the biopunk stuff is really cool, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's potential. I mean, people are doing some really cool things with that. But anyway. But, but, it, but at heart, this book is really interesting because it's entertaining because it has action and intrigue, characters you care about, but it also takes a look at modern-day ecological concerns and mm-hmm. uses them to create this sci-fi future that really speaks to readers today. That sounds really cool. I like the premise of that a lot. I'm going to put that on my list, i got to say. So what do you got? All right, well, I think we, let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we will talk about a book called Super Sad True Love Story. All right, we're back. So, super sad true love story. You've mentioned this one before. I have. I, I've talked about it, like, sort of sputtered about it, but I thought, well, this is a good opportunity to talk about why I'm always bringing it up. It's by Gary Scheingart. 
And just to fly our little futurist freak flag a little bit higher, it is, again, a dystopian, futuristic novel. Not too far in the future, though. I think they're talking about maybe 50 years in the future. It is a fiction, a work of fiction, of course. And it centers around a character by the name of Lenny Abramov, and he is a mid-level drone for a massive multinational corporation. In the future, by the way, the not-too-distant future, like, everything is multinational conglomerate. So it's like Kmart, GE something ridiculous, something other sort of like large company all melded together, which is just, again, it's extrapolating like what's happening in the present in 50 years and sort of taking it to the nth degree, which is why it makes it such an interesting novel. Lenny is working in a division of this multinational corporation, which promises to help the super rich live forever thanks to nanotechnology and super antioxidants and various other overhyped technologies at this point. He falls in love with a beautiful young Korean woman named Eunice. She lives with him, and she really provides the perspective of the youth at that point. She's obsessed with consumerism. She's shallow, but she's not shallow. I mean, she's drawn actually pretty well as a character. She's oversharing. She's obsessed with electronic media culture in which everybody... When you go out in public in this future world, everything is revealed about you via this sort of like iPhone-looking device hanging around everybody's necks. And it projects to everybody else's iPhone device, I think it's called an apparatus or something like that, your credit score, your hotness score, <laughs> every single thing about Like think about every piece of information about yourself that's out there that you could then just automatically transmit to someone. This is what's happening. So something you just posted on Facebook or Twitter so you walk into a bar and all of a sudden you can look down at your apparatus and you can see like what your own hotness score is based on everybody at that very moment looking at you and entering it. Huh. So the premise of it is just really interesting. Everyone is divided into high network net work individuals and low net worth individuals. Um, and basically you have a collapsing America, which is hugely in debt to China. And it definitely has traces of Brave New World in 1984 in it. The reason I really like it is it could have been watered-down satire, but Scheingart is really a very expressive writer, and he builds a very convincing world. So you can easily imagine yourself walking through the streets of New York in this future America where the National Guard is ever-present. You've got a collapsing banking system and yet this technology that really turns people inwards so that they're sort of ignoring all these different things happening around them. And really nice, cohesive world building by Shangard. There's also a running gag where the National Guard stops people at checkpoints and they're forced to deny and imply. They deny that a conversation ever took place and they imply their consent for an invasive search. It is funny because so many times when you're online, you're just agreeing to something. It's very much in that same sort of like, hey, you're agreeing to this, right? But you're not really reading it. And all right, let's go on and so on and so forth. Yeah, like here's an eight-page document you need to read before you visit the website. and you just Yes, yeah. Yeah. So, again, he's taken that idea to the nth degree and said that, you know, you now are living in this, this very public sphere where everything you do is being met with this idea of you deny and imply. 
and you're entering into these contracts that you don't even know about. In the afterward, Scheingart says that he read Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity is Near mm-hmm. while he was working on the book, as well as our friend Aubrey de Grey. I say oh, our yeah. friend because I imagine one. this yep. as friends. The bearded one, the biogerontologist. His book, Ending Aging, The Rejuvenation Breakthrough That Could Reverse Human Aging in Our Lifetime. And he definitely takes these ideas, which are really cool and very cutting edge, but he does look at it through a lens of pessimism. He says, in this future, sure, all of this would be accessible, but only to the super rich. Everyone else would be labeled impossible to preserve or ITP in this world. So that's why I think it's interesting. It touches on so many things that we've discussed. Yeah. And it's done really well. Cool. Yeah, that's one I, I really need to uh, add to my reading list as well. You've mentioned it, again, several times in relation to topics we've discussed. And it sounds like it's kind of funny, too. Yeah, yeah. He's got a great sense of humor. And it really is, actually, I mean, the title is apt. It is a love story, but it's it's heartbreaking and it's beautiful and poignant and terrifying at the same time. Well, my next pick isn't very funny. In fact, even though this is an author that I understand has written some things that have a lot more humor and absurdity to them, this is not one of those books. The book is Embassy Town by China Mieville. As we're recording this podcast, it is on the list of nominees for 2012 Hugo Award. I have a suspicion it might win it. We'll see how that plays out. This is a science fiction novel. It takes place in a far future. Humans have colonized distant space and they travel through these kind of a warp situation where they kind of they move through a an alternate dimension to emerge into real space again. And one of the stopovers, well, not only a stopover, it's really the distant frontier, is a planet that has an alien race on it called the Areiki. And in this story, we have a human colonist named Abbas returning to this uh, planet in the town there, Embassy Town, after years of deep space adventure. And she ends up getting sucked into this adventure and this all this intrigue between the human colonists and the Iraqis that live there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it ends up having to do with language and the nature of language. And not just ideas of like how might aliens communicate versus humans and how would humans communicate with aliens. So there is a lot of discussion of that. It also gets into just deeper ideas of what language is. For instance, the Iraqis in their language, they do not have lies. Like, they cannot tell lies because it's not built into their linguistic machinery. Mm -hmm. Not just lies, but they cannot speak things that cannot be physically proven. Mm -hmm. So they end up having to, like, just to form similes, they end up having to enlist actors and sort of construct them out of minor dramas. Mm -hmm. And uh, (laughs) and so it's just thought-provoking in terms of its use of language. And it really makes you think about what language is, what lies are, and what the ramifications for these things could be when it comes to human contact with mm-hmm. a potential alien species. So I recommend giving that one a read. It also has a strong female protagonist, which is always a nice change for sci-fi. And like I said, it might win a Hugo Award this year, so one of the more uh, remarkable science fiction books of the last few years. I really like that idea that aliens couldn't lie because it's not part of the skill set that they need. Mm-hmm. And I know that we talked about this before when we, when we did a podcast on lying and how with humans... It's like integral to the way that we enter into social contracts. You cannot actually be human really without lying at some point, however you define lying. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's an interesting premise. There's this added level, too, where in order to actually communicate with them, you can't just have one person trying to speak the Iraqi tongue. You have to have two individuals who essentially have the same mind that are performing a duet Uh, So, like I say, the author put in a tremendous amount of thought and research into language and what language is. So if you're at all interested in alien linguistics, then definitely give this book a read. Yeah, very cool. Okay, so I have a nonfiction book called The Magic of Reality. 
Ooh. How We Know What's Really True by Richard Dawkins. We've talked about him before. Yes. He's authored many books. He's big money. He's big money time. Selfish Gene is one that probably a lot of people mm-hmm. know. I love this book. I picked it up actually for my daughter because I'm creating sort of a library for her for when she gets older and she's only three. So obviously now, is this going to be the official library or is this the secret library that you're actually tricking her into reading? It's just a bunch of books that she can pick up. I mean, I'm not going to say, like, today we're going to pick up Richard Dawkins and you're going to go to page 26. It's just a books that I think will be really helpful for her as she develops at different stages in her life. So okay. this book is actually billed for all ages, but I kind of see this more as, like, maybe a really precocious 10 and up. Mm-hmm. But the reason why I selected this is because Dawkins basically takes sort of, like, this whole, like, hey, here's the universe and we're going to explain it to you now. In no uncertain terms. I mean, it's really cool. Like he he starts out by talking about magic, mm-hmm. because magic and magical thinking is very much a human construct, right? We've talked about this so many times. It can lead to errors in our thinking. It can lead to beautiful works of art. And he says that when it comes to science, that uh, reality is actually much more magical than magic itself. I'm just going to read this little bit. This is actually a description of the book. It says, magic takes many forms. Supernatural magic is what our ancestors used in order to explain the world before they developed the scientific method. The ancient Egyptians explained the night by suggesting the goddess Nut swallowed the sun. The Vikings believed a rainbow was the god's bridge to earth. The Japanese used to explain earthquakes by conjuring a gigantic catfish that carried the world on its back. Whoa, that's not true? Oh, man. I've been... I think I wrote that into an article. This book's for you. All right. I know what you're going to be reading right after this. Yeah, it's not true that earthquakes occurred each time it flipped its tail. Oh, see? Oh, man. Yeah, you're telling you have to revise your articles. My, my whole worldview is completely twitched around now. That yeah, yeah, yeah. These are magical, extraordinary tales, and they're wonderful, but there is another kind of magic, and it lies in the exhilaration of discovering the real answers to these questions. It is the magic of reality, science. So there are 12 different questions or topics that he tackles, and they're all introduced with the supernatural explanation that we all know and love. And then Dawkins sprinkles his magic science dust on top and and makes you realize that the rigors of scientific method uncover the old adage that the truth really is stranger than fiction. And it makes that even more glorious. Some of the areas that he covers are what is reality? Who was the first person? Um, He talks about DNA. He talks about 300 million years ago, you can point to this lizard and say, hey, man, you and me, we share a lot in common. What is an earthquake? There really is no stone left unturned. In this section, the last section, he takes on miracles. Uh, and he ends by saying, and I won't go into all the different things that he talks about in terms of what is a miracle. The, he ends this section by saying, the eminent science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke summed up the point as Clarke's third law. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If a time machine were to carry us forward a century or so, we would see wonders today we might think impossible miracles. The truth is more magical in the best and most exciting sense of the world than any myth or made-up mystery or miracle. Science has its own magic, the magic of reality. So, again, he's going back to sort of the basics of very mind-blowing stuff to us that we've talked about before in terms of how did our planet form, talking about stardust, uh, talking about how, how do we really know that dinosaurs existed? Well, okay, you know, we've got fossils and da da da, da. I mean, and 
it, it's amazing. He even talks about like, okay, some of these things might have sounded like myth when scientists were proposing them, especially with sci-fi writers. He talks about. He says, but they take these ideas and they create theories out of them, and then they create a model to test them. And DNA is a perfect example of this. This was an idea that was then modeled. And then, you know, through a series of different things of research and data that came up, we came to realize that this was a truth. That's why it's so entertaining because he really, he takes on these really heady concepts and he writes very eloquently and very humorously, but very clearly. Because again, this is for all ages. And I do recommend it to adults because I think that you would get a lot out of it. But I also think it's really worth its weight in gold because it talks about the skeptic's eye, not as someone who, like, you know, let's pick apart everything and take the magic out of things, but more like, let's not be run by our superstitions, our magical thinking. Let's view the magic of reality just in day-to-day life and be able to sort of to look at the, the invisible world and see how incredible it is. And I think that's a huge message to kids, well, and to adults as well. Well, the final book on my list of four summer reading recommendations is a book called The Player of Games by Ian M. Banks. And this is a a book from the Culture series, which I've mentioned before. I generally bring it up because it takes place in a distant future where humanity and machines live in a symbiotic relationship. So it's a post-technological singularity world where we see the more positive ramifications. Not to say there's not some darkness in this world. There, oh, yeah, yeah. This is the benign singularity. Yeah, yeah, definitely a benign singularity situation, though you do have some dark things that end up happening in this universe. Mm-hmm. And this book deals specifically with a clash between the culture, again, robots, humans living in, in harmony, basically humans doing whatever they want while robots look after them and do the hard work. And, <laughs> and so humans end up living lives of complete freedom. In this book, we have a human by the name of Gerga, and he has used his life to become a master of games. He's the player of games that we reference in the title. So he's a master of all these different board games and travels around just having a good time and playing them in competition, very obsessive about winning. And he ends up being recruited by the culture, by the robots that run the culture, to serve as an emissary to this civilization that exists outside of the culture in non-culture space called the Empire of Azad. And they are a cruel, incredibly wealthy, destructive alien race. But at the heart of their culture, they have this one super complex game. And it serves as the backbone not only of their empire and its laws, but also the very cognitive development of the race. So imagine a civilization where there's one game that in all its complexity and reasoning is the backbone of everything they hold dear and everything that they are. Hmm. And so the culture wants to send him in, and he's on this like long journey, so he has plenty of time to practice and learn the game and play it against one of the uh, AIs on the ship. And then when he gets there, he's expected to compete with members of this cruel alien race. The idea being that by playing a human in this scenario, they'll somehow achieve a balance and they'll avoid war with the Empire of Azad. So it's a great introductory read to the Culture series, because the Culture series is not one of these series where you need to like start with book one and then read through book eight. Mm-hmm. Most of them, to my understanding, stand on their own. I haven't read them all. I've only read a handful. But every one seems to exist well on its own. And the player of games certainly does that. It's a fascinating look at what a post-singularity world might consist of, Mm -hmm. some of the more positive uh, visions of that. It's a great analysis of what games 
mean to a civilization. And Ian M. Banks is great about throwing in some really cool sciencey stuff. Like he's clearly clearly has a very scientific mind, so he'll do things like, for instance, there's a planet in this book where the only land on the planet, everything is water except for this single strip of land that goes all the way around the equator. And you have a firestorm that moves along that strip of land so that the ecosystem on this planet is a fire-based ecosystem. In the, in the same way that you have plants that depend on forest fires to reproduce, mm-hmm. all the life on this planet has evolved to deal with this uh, cyclical firestorm that goes all the way around the world. So he'll throw in things like that. Where yeah. he's, he's thinking about life in other worlds or planetary physics or whatever it happens to be, and he'll incorporate that, even if it's just a fascinating nugget along the way. And unlike some of the other authors that I mentioned, Ian and Banks tends to write with a certain degree of humor mm-hmm. that is not necessarily prevalent in the other three works. So if you want something that is at times lighter and might uh, get a giggle out of you, uh, I find Ian and Banks tends to fit the bill on that. Yeah, and I'd say, too, that seems like uh, you know one of the commonalities between all of these, or most of these, is that there is some sense of humor, that the author enters into the, inf- the information with a good sense of humor, it sounds like. So, which, you know, is important to us. All right, very cool. I was going to mention a book that I'm going to check out. It's called Internal Time, The Science of Chronotypes, Social Jet Lag, and Why You're So Tired. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really interesting because we are at a point in our history where we are not, I think, because of technology, as tied to time as we used to be. Mm-hmm. And so it does seem like there is a bit of a shift in the way that people are approaching their schedules. Not only that, you know, as everybody knows, despite that and some sort of flexibility we seem to be cramming so much into our time and, and really suffering for it. So I, I really am interested in finding out more about this, these chronotypes that supposedly all of us possess a different chronotype and internal timing type. Mm-hmm. So some people are early risers, some people are late risers, and this seems to be historically we've thought, oh, okay, well, that means that you're a layabout if you get up late or you know, you're a go-getter if you get up at 6 a.m. or whatever. Those are just very arbitrary terms that have been ascribed to people that this idea of the chronotype is something that is more hardwired into us. So going to check that out. And then two quick mentions. I won't go into them too much. Some we love, some we hate, and some we eat. We've talked about this book. Yes. It's great. I am going to go... our relationship with animals. Our relationship mm-hmm. with animals, our tenuous relationship with animals, how confused we are. We're kind of butt over tea kettle when it comes to this, right? And how we perceive animals. And as the title says, some we love, some we hate, and some we eat. So I'm going to check that out a little bit more this summer because there are some things I want to revisit, especially there's a, a chapter on animal cruelty and this myth that serial killers start off as killers of animals. That This is actually not true, that children do this as sort of a mastery of, of their own uh, places in the world and this idea of trying to figure out what power is over another person or thing. So I want to check that out. And the next book, last book, The Family Fang. It is a fiction book. It's about Caleb and Camille Fang. They're performance artists who use their two children, Annie and Buster, otherwise known as Child A and Child B, (laughs) as parts of their performance pieces. And it seems like it's going to be like a, a pretty smart debate about the human cost of sacrificing everything for art. And this idea of family. Everybody always thinks that they have the freakiest family, so it'll be interesting to see uh, that, <laughs> that idea played out with the family fang. Oh, cool. Well, for my part, I'm, I think this may be the summer I finally read Dan Simon's Hyperion. Oh, yeah. Which is a classic sci-fi book that our, our, our boss I was is one say, of our, the, the many people yeah. that 
is always Have you read that yet? Yeah. Yeah. I think I have a friend who's going to try reading it, so hopefully this will be the summer on that. I should also point out real quick that the fiction books that I mentioned here, if you're Obviously, if you're a parent, your involvement in whatever your kid reads, that's your own deal. But I, I would like to point out that the author, Paolo Basagalupi, the author of The Wind-Up Girl, he also has a couple of young adult novels. One in particular that's out as we're recording this is called Shipbreaker. Mm-hmm. And it deals with the same setting, a post-oil, ecologically ravaged world, but it's aimed at a younger audience, so you don't have to worry about there being anything inappropriate in there. I would list that as an alternative. Or if you're just, I mean, I know plenty of adults who prefer young adult novels. I mean, there are a lot of great young adult novels out there that can be enjoyed by any age, so So take those as alternatives. So we present you this list of books. You can use this if you're trying to think of something you want to you want to read. So if you do happen to pick one of these up, if you read something that we have recommended, or if you're reading something that we're planning to read this summer, or if you've, you've read it already and have some thoughts on it, if you would like to encourage us in these choices that we have made, or say, actually, you're making a huge mistake by reading Hyperion or whatever, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook, and you can find us on Twitter. On Facebook, we're Stuff to Blow Your Mind. On Twitter, our handle is Blow the Mind. And you can drop us a line at... Blow the mind at discovery.com. 